Well, you ever had a relationship like that where you feel like, man, we really love well, kind of like battleships, where, man, they're just, there's tension where you don't want there to be tension, there's misunderstanding where you don't want to be misunderstanding, you're like, well, I don't want to fight anymore, why do my business partner and I just continue to disagree on this? And I, I go into the conversation trying to calm myself with my son or daughter, and then they just drive me crazy, and I say things, or they say things. I wish I could just get along better with my parents and my roommate in college. I think in some sense, all of us have ways in which we bash into each other, even when we don't want to. In our new series, Battle Stations, we're going to talk about how you and I can fight. Fight for freedom and fight for forgiveness. And it is a battle to learn how to forgive one another. It's a battle to know how to get free from bitterness and unforgiveness. And today I want to tell you the story about a man named Bud Welsh. And he goes through an incredible battle, an incredible journey to learn how to forgive. And he's going to learn how to relinquish revenge. And during this Lent season for the next six weeks, we're going to be spending the next six weeks reflecting on forgiveness and how we can begin to take steps in forgiveness. And Bud is going to take a journey from wanting revenge for really good reasons, wanting God to cut people down for what they did to his family, to learning how to relinquish that revenge and find freedom in his own life. Now, to do that, we're going to take you back. Prior to September 11th, probably the most famous terrorist attack in the United States was the Oklahoma City bombing. So I'm going to take you back to the Oklahoma City bombing to get the feeling of what happened to this man's family, the feelings of wanting revenge and God to cut other people down, and how he made the journey to battle to find forgiveness. Let's watch. A massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, shattering that building, killing children, killing federal employees, military men, and civilians. The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believed to be a 1,200-pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building shortly after 9 o'clock this morning. More than 500 people were already in their offices, and at least 50 children were in a daycare center on the second floor. Bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice. And it was evil. The United States will not tolerate it. And I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated. Two suspects now have been identified, known only as John Doe. They're both about 5'10 to 5'11, about 180 pounds, both with brown hair, one with a crew cut, the other with a tattoo. Those sketches were released as rescue workers worked their way through the wreckage of the Murrah Federal Building, looking for survivors among the close to 200 people believed to be still in that rubble. Authorities now believe the truck that bore the bomb was parked in a space alongside the federal building. A second vehicle may have been nearby to permit the bombers to escape. The FBI said today it was a huge explosion and that the explosive used was most likely a simple combination of fertilizer and fuel oil. The indictment charges that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, former Army buddies with a grudge against the government, planned the bombing, selected the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City as their target, bought and stole materials for the bomb, and built it. McVeigh is specifically charged with having delivered the bomb to the Murrah Building in a truck that he rented under a false name and having detonated the bomb at the Murrah Building. 
Timothy McVeigh, guilty, guilty of murder, guilty of conspiracy, guilty on all 11 federal charges that he faced in the Oklahoma City bombing trial. His conviction comes a little more than two years after a massive bomb shattered the Murrah Federal Building, killing 168 people, including 19 children. It was the worst terrorist act in American history. Bud Welch lost his 23-year-old daughter, Julie, during the bombing. I lived with so much hate for the first four weeks or so after her death that I didn't even want a trial for Tim McVeigh or Terry Nichols. I just wanted him fried. Julie was a beautiful young woman, a Spanish translator in the Social Security office. The burned skeleton of her car was found parked under the survivor tree. Of course, the bombing was Wednesday morning, and her body wasn't found until Saturday. Bud grieved for more than a year with a bottle in his hand. And my head was splitting. Every muscle in my body ached from alcohol abuse. By chance, Bud saw Tim McVeigh's father on television and realized that that dad was about to lose his child. Uh, pain I recognized because I was living the same pain at the same moment. And I knew in spite of my feelings about his son at that point, uh, that someday I needed to go tell that man I truly cared how he felt and did not blame him or his family for what his son had done. Bud traveled to New York State to do just that. And after spending the afternoon with Bill McVeigh, they cried together over the loss of their children. All of a sudden, it was like this tremendous weight had been removed from my shoulders. And I've never felt closer to God than I did at that moment. Bud Welch unsuccessfully fought Tim McVeigh's execution. On June 11th, 2001, a Monday morning at 7 a.m. in Terre Haute, Indiana, we took Tim McVeigh from his cage and we killed him. And there was nothing about that process that brought me any peace. Bill McVeigh and I had one thing in common. We had both buried our children. Julie's chair is among the 168 on the memorial grounds. Faces that never grow older. Their absence from our lives still felt these 20 years later. That won't change. But Bud Welch says forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. When you forgive, it's not an event. It's a process. And it goes on many, many months and sometimes many, many years. The survivor tree witnessed the tragedy. But more importantly, those moments when Oklahomans came together. There was no regard to religion, class, or race. It was a glimpse of the world as it can be. What a messy messy situation. A terrorist who needs justice, a person who's angry for good reason with huge loss, another father who's heartbroken that his son has done what he's done. How do we relinquish revenge in the middle of such complicated and difficult circumstances? How do we, like Bud said, how do we give the gift to ourselves of forgiveness? How do we battle to find our own freedom and forgiveness? I also want to look at today, and I have sat with many, many, many individuals and couples over the years, and I've helped them make a, dis- a distinction between three different aspects of forgiveness that I think is going to be helpful for you. As you learn how to battle to find forgiveness for yourself, we're going to find that it only takes one to forgive. It takes two to reconcile. It takes time to restore trust. And so whether the other person asks for forgiveness, whether they're sorry for what they've done or not, 
you can still be free from bitterness because it only takes one, one to forgive. And yet sometimes you've forgiven and you've tried to reconcile with a son or a daughter or a spouse. And quite frankly, they don't want to. And so reconciliation is not always possible. Or sometimes you've forgiven somebody and they're not trustworthy. And it's not even healthy for you to reconcile with them. You can choose to forgive someone even if you can't reconcile with someone. And you can want to reconcile with someone, yet it's outside of your control. And so you never do and you don't have to feel guilty for that. And yet there's also a place where you have forgiven someone. You're both open to reconciling, but you don't trust them yet. The betrayal was so deep. The broken trust was so significant that it's going to take time. And one person in that relationship is saying, hey, I thought you said you forgave me. You should trust me. No, 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 no. These are three different stages. I forgave you. And I'm open to reconciling with you. But it's going to take time to restore trust. And making these distinctions, I think, will help you in your journey of battling for your own forgiveness. To do that, we're going to look at a story of a man in the Bible who did some pretty horrific things. And the people to whom he did it to are going to try and figure out if they can believe he's forgiven, if they could forgive him, if they could even reconcile with him, but could they trust him who'd been trying to destroy them to be one among them? And his name was Saul. And I hope that as you journey through this, you're going to find some freedom that I found. That I have learned how to forgive. And sometimes it's messy. In fact, it's almost always messy. Every time I think I've forgiven it, then I, I pick that grudge back up. I begin to pet my pet grudge. You know, those emotions come back out. And it's a process. And it's a messy one. But to do that, I want to look at three different stages here. And the first stage is that at some point or another, you're going to find that all of us have a Saul in our life. Meaning, in general, we're committed to forgiveness. And we tell it to our kids, hey, say you're sorry, say you're sorry. Forgiveness is a good thing. We see it on newspapers. We see stories on the news like you just saw. In general, most of us are committed to the concept of forgiveness. And we think you should probably forgive most people for a lot of things. Until you come face to face with your Saul. Your Saul is the person, could be an ex-spouse, who betrayed you, could be a child who withheld grandchildren from you for ways you don't think are appropriate, could be a roommate who purposely went out with your girlfriend just to see if he could. These are intentional, malicious, betraying, cruel, purposeful actions that someone did against you. And this person is now your Saul. And in general, you think we should probably forgive most people, but for whatever reason, you can't get over what Saul did to you. What she said, what he did, what he didn't do. How it destroyed your business, how it destroyed your reputation. And this man named Saul in the Bible lived in the first century. And he is a very religious man, high, highly educated, went to the Oxford of his day, 
high, high authority of the Roman government, and he is coming after to destroy, literally destroy and kill all the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, they were called. And in the middle of that encounter, he has an encounter with God on a Damascus road that God throws him to his knees. Jesus reveals himself to Saul and says, You're not just persecuting people. You're persecuting people I love and live in. And when you persecute them, you persecute me. Saul is given temporary blindness so he can think about how he's been so blind to how malicious and selfish and evil and inappropriate he's been. And now, God could have just said, hey, you're forgiven, let's move on. God decides in the middle of this encounter to send a message via prayer to a guy named Ananias. Ananias has heard of Saul. He's been cowering from Saul. He's been like, hey, if Saul's in town, hide. Don't let him find you. And God tells Ananias, I want you to arise from your prayer time and go and tell Saul he's been forgiven and I have a plan for him. Look what it says. Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to Ananias, arise and go to the street called Straight, where I'm trying to straighten out this guy, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for he's praying. I bet he's praying. He's praying that God's going to cut me down. That's what he's praying. I've seen, I've heard stories. But God is going to, at some point in your journey, God is so committed to your freedom God is so committed to you not being torn up inside with the ulcers and the anger of all that bitterness. God is going to tell you to arise and go. And face the feelings you have about your Saul. And to begin to find freedom for yourself. Just like it did for Ananias. For lots of people it's easy to forgive. But will you face your Saul? There's a book called The Hiding Place. It tells the story of Corey Tinboon. Corey and her sister were in a Holocaust encampment. Packed in, hundreds of women packed in, humiliated by the man in charge of the camp. He made them walk naked in front of him. They had lice, didn't do anything with it. Corey Tinboon had to watch her sister and her just starve, just be a frail of their human self. It took away their dignity. Got to see many of their friends and family die in front of them during their time in this Nazi camp. And then the war was over. And she was released and survived. And she spent the next years trying to figure out how to free herself, not just from the camp she was in, but from the bitterness and the anger from the horrible injustices done. She was a woman of faith, and she found that the secret to doing this came from the message of the Bible. It's not to say, well, what they did wasn't really that bad. That doesn't work with Saul's. But to say, the seeds of wrongdoing and the wrongdoing, there's definitely different things have different suitcases of consequences. But what is in that man who's in charge of the camp, that fallenness before God is also in me. And though I didn't let it grow the way he let it grow, I need forgiveness as much as him. Now that's a tough nut to swallow. 
But that's actually what the Bible says, that one of the ways you move toward forgiveness is recognizing that what's in the most evil person you've ever met, though they've allowed it to grow, the seeds of that are in you and I, and we all need equal forgiveness. Corey Tinboom began to wrestle with that, and that began the journey of her being able to, if God's forgiven me of what I have done, and the seeds of everything that's in him, then I will choose to forgive those who oppress me. She was lecturing from Holland. She went to defeated Germany and she began to talk about the power of forgiveness and the power of God's forgiveness to be able to bring people together. She got done lecturing one evening in the basement and a man shuffled up to meet her, holding his brown hat with a skull and crossbones. Immediately her eyes caught his and she recognized him even though he didn't recognize her. And he said, I've been listening to what you said. And after the war, I realized the evil things I had done. And I came to believe in Jesus that he could forgive me for what I've done. And I felt like I needed to come and beg, beg, beg your forgiveness for what I was part of and what I did to you. And she'd immediately seeing him, all the images of her starving sister and her frail body appeared before her. She hadn't thought of it in years. And the thinking that she had forgiven this man suddenly came face to face. Have I really forgiven this man who's now asking for my forgiveness? She said there was a silence and a turmoil in her soul as she began to think for a moment. Do I really believe I'm forgiven? Do I really believe somebody like that could be forgiven? And she extended her hand and said, Brother. Because one of the messages of the Bible is that what makes us brothers and sisters or part of God's family is we all have a unique starting place. We all need forgiveness from God. Now, forgiving him that day does not mean they need to be best friends. Forgiving him that day does not mean that he shouldn't face punishment for his war crimes. Forgiveness does not mean that somebody doesn't need to face justice. But it means you're going to be free from holding up who deserves and doesn't deserve justice. That's the gift she gave herself that day. It doesn't mean that she's going to trust him to hang out with her and they're going to restore trust, but she chose to forgive. I had somebody who had violated my trust deeply for many, many years. The way he had treated me, the way I had been gossiped about, some way he maligned my job opportunities. And I really have worked over the years and felt like I had 100% forgiven him. And I think I had. I happened to be on Facebook and I saw that his father had passed away. His father passed away and I saw that he was giving some comments that they recorded on a little video on my newsfeed of him speaking at his dad's funeral. And just seeing that, my first reaction was not empathy, somebody lost their dad, which is how I typically feel toward someone. My first reaction was not, oh, I can't wait to hear what he said about his dad. But I began to critique all the things which I thought he did wrong to me. And I thought, wow, I need to rebattle again 15 years later. And so I posted a nice note, hey, I'm so sorry about your loss. I did listen to the comments. Yeah, I, the words you said to your, your father really were meaningful. I think it's the first time I've complimented this person I've forgiven in 15 years. But it was just one more step in my journey. Do I want to ever work for him again? No. There's not enough evidence for me to go work for him. Do I want to be best friends with him? I'm not against it, but I don't think it's possible at this point. 
But I realized even 15 years later, there was still a little bit more forgiveness that I needed to wrestle with. So we all have a Saul. And that Saul and the message of Jesus that he can forgive us all because he can forgive you will begin the journey of you finding freedom. But most of us don't want to forgive our Saul for good reasons, right? We all have a story. And when Ananias has God tell him, hey, you need to forgive this guy. You need to go and tell him he can be forgiven. The first thing out of Ananias' mouth is the same thing that's out of your and my mouth. Even if we don't pray it or, or we don't articulate it to God, we're saying it in our, our minds all the time if you listen to yourself. It's all the reasons why that person should not be off the hook. And I'm not even saying they're illegitimate. They're, pro- they're all true. These are the obstacles for giving somebody. They don't deserve it. And you tell your story, right? And I bet you if we sat here and heard your story, a lot of us would begin to weep because of what was done to you and how long it lasted and how cruel it was. And the obstacles are all embedded here when Ananias says, Lord, I have heard about this man. You ever told God stuff like God's never heard this before? God, God do, do you know what he did? Do you know what she did? Do you know how long this went on? Do you know what the, the fair went on for this long? Do you know what, they, you know what the grandkids were taking? Do you know the relationship that was broken? I have heard about how bad this is. God, let me tell you the story before you tell me to forgive somebody. Do you know how bad this was? You ever told God this? He goes on. How much harm he has done to the saints. It's not just how he hurt me. He hurt other people I care about. In fact, sometimes I think it's harder to forgive somebody who hurts your kids than to hurt you, right? You're bitter about that girl in eighth grade who sent that gossipy text that your daughter had to deal with the consequences of, and it wasn't even against you. You're still angry. Your daughter or son is over it you know, five years ago, but you still think about that person and get angry because you've got a story about what they did and how malicious it was and you picking up all the pieces. There was harm caused. Like, I can't forgive them because if I, if I forgive them, it gives them a license to harm more people. And Saul's got paperwork right now. He has authority from the chief priest right now. It's not like he's giving up the paperwork. He can come in here right now if he sees me and haul me off to jail. We all have a story as to why that Saul in our life doesn't deserve forgiveness. And for some of us, if we forgive them, it means that we don't think what they did was that bad. No, no, that's not what it means. We think if we forgive them, it means they shouldn't go to jail or shouldn't be held justice. No, no, those are separate things. You can forgive someone and still want them to pay their debt to society. Those two can coexist. And you can forgive somebody without being their best friend. And you can forgive somebody without trusting them with your son or your daughter or your career again. That's why these three words are so helpful. Let's look at them again. Because sometimes when you compile them all together is why forgiveness gets so hard to do. Let's pull them apart. Forgiveness. It takes one person, you, to be free. Don't you want to be free from bitterness? If you want to be free from bitterness, you can hand revenge over to God. Instead of me keeping track of what they did wrong, me keeping track of everything that's happened, I'm going to hand this over to you. Reconciliation. It takes two people. And both those people want to admit what they've done. You can't have a relationship with somebody who's not willing to admit at some level what they've done. You might want to reconcile, you might want to get back, but if it's always you admit what you've done, but they're never wrong, that's not a relationship. Both people have to be committed to try at least to admit, to try to repair and want to reconcile so they can move forward. It's not always possible. And restoration takes time and evidence. 
evidence that change has happened so that you can reestablish trust after forgiveness and reconciliation have occurred. And sometimes your story about forgiving is really a story about why you can't restore your trust, which is valid, and why you shouldn't reconcile, which is valid. But don't let those stories keep you from being free from bitterness right here and right now. Because forgiveness is messy. I told you my brother and I had a disconnect in our relationship that lasted about six years, which to this day I still think I was totally accused of things that were not true. And I think the evidence has continued to prove that they were untrue. Despite that, I kept trying to, not only, I've forgiven my brother, I spent five years trying to reconcile with him. I told you the story how I went to Hollywood and through a lot of tears and misunderstandings and me trying to understand his point of view, we reopened up dialogue. Because I wanted to not only forgive my brother, I wanted to reconcile with my brother. And we're trying to plan a trip together, he and I, this, this year to try and restore some trust. But part of our most recent conversation about two months ago is he called up angry at me again because I had had one contact with his son. His son's 19, another son's in his 20s. And part of him reconciling with me is he requires me not to talk to my nephews. I've never done anything. I'm not mad at them. I've never done anything to them. He cut off contact with them and thinks I should cut off contact with them as well. So forgiveness is messy. Because now, I told him, I think, I think you're making an inappropriate request of me. I don't think adults should demand other adults not have a relationship with other adults. So I just don't think that's a reasonable request. But I have honored your unreasonable request because our relationship's that important to me. But you're keeping me from having a relationship with two young boys who are desperate for their dad, let alone for their uncle, to call them. But in this area, he's unmovable. It's messy. In order to forgive and reconcile with him... I have to not have a relationship with two other people I'd like to know better. I was sitting up near the winter club with a good friend of mine. He said, Chad, I need to tell you something. As we sat in the car that day together up there in the winter club in the parking lot, he said, I've been having a six-month, nine-month affair. My jaw kind of dropped. It's a man I knew really well. He said, in my... My wife found out she's obviously angry and frustrated. And what's worse is I got my mistress pregnant. To which I said, do you think you'd be here telling me that you're having an affair if you had had not gotten your mistress pregnant? Probably not. So I'm not sure you're repentant yet. You're just caught. There's a difference. He said, well, this is a baby. This is a real baby. This is a life in there. I'm pro-life. I I adopted a child that was going to be aborted. You don't need to convince me. What's with the big lecture? Well, what I told my wife is that this this life is so important. We've got to raise this together. So I've asked my wife to meet my mistress because we've got to raise this family. This is how distorted you get. I said, you know what the proper response for your wife right now is? Anger. You have given away something that belonged to her. And for you to think that somebody who should be angry right now and is still in the process of seeing if she can even forgive you, if she's even open to reconciling with you, let alone one day trusting you again, and you're asking her to forgive, reconcile, and befriend the person who did something evil and destroyed the marriage, this doesn't make any sense at all. I thought he was going to punch me. He gave me a big speech about life again. And 
took months in our relationship for him to start realizing just how screwed up his thinking was. It's messy. It's been many, many years. They actually have forgiven each other, have gotten a lot of that mess straightened out. He actually got some serious um, help for the sex addiction that he had and some other broken things. And, And their marriage is actually doing very well a decade later. Steve and Elizabeth were good friends of mine. I met them in Atlanta. Steve also had had an affair, and he had was big into working out, and he ended up working out with a, a female trainer who ended up having an affair with, leaving his marriage, marrying his trainer. They started coming to our church. They didn't necessarily believe in Jesus, God, or the Bible. They began to discover that, one, there's a God who says there's certain things that are right and wrong. There's certain things that we think are, I'm just in love, and it ends up, you know, causing chaos and and terrible things to happen all over our relationships. They also found a God who could forgive, who could direct, who could help. And one day they came up and they said, we need forgiveness. We've done a lot of terrible things, but here's one of the terrible things we've done. And they end up coming to believe in Jesus, accept his forgiveness for, for their affair as well as other things, and to believe that God could forgive them. As they began to wrestle with that, Stephen and Elizabeth said, you know what, we need to go back and apologize. I don't know if you'll listen to us. We need to go back and apologize to Steve's wife for what we did. It's a pretty amazing story. I'm not sure if I was Steve's wife, I would have taken the call, but she did. And when they felt like they needed to share what they had done was wrong, was bad, was evil, was destructive, it became a piece of the puzzle that Steve's wife needed in order to continue her journey of forgiveness. Did she want to be best friends with Steve anymore? No. Did she want to trust the trainer anymore? No. But sometimes God might nudge you that you need to actually offer a piece that somebody else needs to help them forgive by you owning what you did. As much as you can, as clear as you can, as specific as you can. You can give a gift to somebody else in helping their journey. You can forgive somebody if they don't apologize. We'll talk about the next, next couple weeks. But if you could apologize, it would even be a part of the healing of your family, of your company, of that disagreement. So don't let your story of what somebody did or why it's not appropriate or why, you know, Get in the way of you finding forgiveness and freedom. We all have a Saul, and we've all been a Saul, by the way. We all have a story. And lastly, we all have a station. Like I said, forgiveness is messy. And if there's one thing America, what we're learning in America in 2019 is, don't you dare ever do anything wrong, and don't you apologize for it, because you're going to lose a job, you're going to lose an opportunity, it's going to be smeared all over Twitter for anything you did in the past 30 years. We are living in a world of karma like there's never been before. You're going to be punished, 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 punished now for anything you've ever done. And so all of us are becoming very, very guarded. We don't admit what we've done. We can't dare let it out because it's professional suicide. So forgiveness is needed more than ever and karma is more alive than ever in the world around us. That you don't admit what you've done because you're just going to get punished mercilessly by our society. That's why it's going to be a battle to go through the stations of forgiveness and figure out what reconciliation looks like and what forgiveness looks like and how to find freedom for yourself. One of the first stages, one of the the stations you're going to have to wander past several times if you're going to learn to forgive is you're going to have to let God be in charge of making other people suffer. Now, there's immediately several problems to this. 
in this particular time in philosophy and history, the idea that God judges or that God would be a judge or that God would make people suffer is almost more antithetical to that. That's not what God is like. So we don't even like the idea that God judges. Well, unless you're a J personality, then you love the idea. In fact, that's why it's hard for you to forgive. You're right. God does. He's, I have no problem with him judging. Why does he judge some things quicker? So I want to try and show you how believing in an impartial, fair, judging God helps you find forgiveness. You see, you may theoretically not believe in a God who judges, but why is it you can't let go of your bitterness? Why is it you can't let somebody off the hook? Because you're afraid they're going to get away with it. And you can't trust somebody else to hold them to account. So you're having to make them suffer by keeping track of what they did and taking notes and making sure everybody knows what happened. You, you are so keeping track of making sure you know what they deserve to suffer. Keeping a mental list and checking it twice and telling everybody they've been naughty, not nice. Right? That's what you're doing. Because you don't trust that there's somebody fair and objective and impartial that you can hand this situation to, hand your soul to, to say, God... I'm not qualified to decide what they do or don't deserve. I want them to suffer. Who do I want them to suffer? And objectively, I think I can tell you why they deserve to suffer. But God, I'm going to hand this over to you and say you're in charge of making people suffer, not me. The burden that will come off of you, because you're trying to fill a job description you're not qualified for. You're trying to be God. And here's what he says to Ananias. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. I know he's done those things, but I've chosen to use him. To bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he's going to need to suffer for my name's sake. Now, if I'm Ananias, I'm like, well, how many? (laughs) How many people has he killed? How much suffering is he going to have? When you hand things over to God, you're saying, God, if you choose to show mercy to my soul, I'm going to trust that you know best. They're gritted teeth. If you choose to give a little few more lightning bolts than I would have, praise God. But either way, for the sake of your own freedom, you're going to hand the situation, hand Saul over to God, say, God's in charge of making people suffer, not me. And for the sake of my own freedom, I need to be free from this. And you're going to have to circle Everyone who's ever learned how to forgive has had to circle to the station of learning how to pass over judgment to someone more qualified than yourself. Second, if God's in charge of making people suffer, then I'm in charge of setting myself free. Let yourself be in charge of finding freedom. Letting yourself be in charge of ending your own suffering. Because while you've been keeping track of what everybody did, all you're doing is you're not making them suffer. They don't, your soul doesn't care about you. All you're doing is making yourself suffer. Time for you and I to be in charge of making ourselves end our own suffering. Ananias goes over. Saul, great risk to me. I want you to know. I've forgiven you. I want you to know God's forgiven you. And it says immediately these scales fall off Saul's eyes. And immediately, there starts to be some life change. Immediately, the guy who is persecuting Jesus and the followers of the way begins to immediately preach about Christ in the synagogues. Guys, I was wrong. Guys, I made mistakes. 
God, I was totally off base on this thing. And when you truly come to a place of forgiveness, there should at least be some immediate evidence. Not, not you're all the way there, but immediately there should be evidence that things are starting to change. You're starting to rehearse it a little bit less. Every time it shows up, you've got a new habit. God, I'm handing this back to you. Hand this back to you. You can immediately find some freedom that's not dependent on what somebody else does when you choose forgiveness. I was sitting in our atrium about two weeks ago talking to Bill. Bill served in the Navy. He says his dad was a pastor and was a man of faith, but he didn't take faith too seriously. But as somebody trained in the military, he knew how to kill. And he said he was obsessed with the idea, for good reason, right? He's in the military, of killing somebody who's trying to kill him. He said the thing he prayed all the time is, God, if I'm trying to kill somebody, I just ask you that before I die, I would make sure I get them. So I thought, well, in the ethics of war, I'm not sure if that's all bad, that you want a bad guy to not kill more bad people. He said, yeah, but I was obsessed with justice for other people. Everybody bad out there. He said, I came back from, uh, from the military and I served in the docks and I was a union enforcer. And man, somebody comes at you with a gun, I'd pull up a lead pipe and you know, I'd go after him. He said, I was just angry all the time. He said, I wanted justice all the time for others. But I never really thought about what would happen if I got justice. He said, I really, I'd read this, this pamphlet called the, about the tears of God and, and the, the trail of tears of us coming to realization of what would happen if we got justice for the thing we did wrong. And I was just thinking about that. I was just angry. I was on the forklift that day, and I'm not sure what exactly it was, but it was like God spoke to me. And I started thinking about my dad. My dad had been praying for me for about 30 years, Bill told me. My dad, though I'd done some terrible things and got in fights and made his life, you know, living hell trying to manage it a lot of the time, my dad just kept praying for me that I'd find forgiveness, kept praying for me that I would find the God who would love me. He goes, I'm not a crier. But that day on that forklift, I burst into tears as I realized I don't want justice coming on my life the way I want justice coming on everybody else's life. I need God's forgiveness. His I cried for three days. I came home and told my wife she thought I need counseling. She had to send me to counseling. She didn't realize God was actually... She, he said it was almost like this big black cloud was lifted off of me. Years of carrying this black cloud of vengeance and giving everybody justice and not thinking about myself. And I found freedom. He said one of my, bo- my boss that was there came up to me after a couple weeks. He's like, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah. Has anything happened to you recently? Why? You seem different. Huh? What do you mean? Wow, you just don't seem so angry all the time. And he told him, this encounter with God, this idea of wanting justice for other people, but not thinking about what it would be like if I got justice for myself, was God's way of beginning to bring the forgiveness of Jesus into his life. Abe Lincoln used to say it this way. He said, I kill my enemies by making them my friends. He forgave them and tried to reconcile with them. I'm going to develop this more in a few weeks, but I think the stations, we have to go at least touch on the last station, which is that I need to also put myself in charge of making a distinction between these three things, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. So we now know God has told Ananias that Saul is forgiven. And yet, 
Saul spent some days with the disciples. All right, now they've got to interact with the guy who supposedly is forgiven. So they're, they're near him. They're around him. And they notice evidence that he's changed. They say, wow, this guy's talking about Jesus, not persecuting him. He could be a spy. I don't know. But you know what? Look at how emphatic he is. Look at the suffering he's enduring. Is this not the guy who destroyed people who used to say this stuff? And they begin to see evidence of life change. And they begin to move from not only thinking he's forgiven by God to maybe reconciling with him if there's more evidence. And then what does it say? It says Saul increased in more strength. He just begins talking to more people. He begins to endure persecution for this new message. So when Saul had come to Jerusalem... So he comes to a new town. Hey, guys, you may have heard about me. Used to do bad stuff. I'm now talking about good stuff. He tried to join the disciples. Hey, I want to join the clan. I want to be part of it. Maybe I'll write some books. It'll be in the New Testament. And what do they say? No way. They did not believe he was a disciple. Why? Not enough time and not enough evidence yet. So even the disciples with Saul, who ends up writing most of the books in the New Testament, they had to go through a stage of forgiving. We're not ready to reconcile yet. We need more evidence. We're certainly not ready to restore trust. And if you will make those distinctions in your journey, God will begin to help you in that process. Because here's the thing about bitterness, and here's the thing about anger. It doesn't just affect you. Right? When somebody in your family or your company is mad at each other, isn't everybody having to walk on eggshells in the meeting? Because, oh, if you say so-and-so, it's going to look like you're inside. There's a divorce. It's a whose side do you want? All the mess. Grace and the forgiveness of God is the only thing that can sort of cut through the mess. Do you remember in 1998, there was a, a, a trucker coming uh, 74 and 75 here in Cincinnati. And there was an accident right there at that kind of spaghetti juncture area. And as they had an accident, there 6,700 gallons of animal fat got spread all over the road. Do you remember this? If you don't, it's all over the place. And all of a sudden, one guy's mistake, one guy's accident affects everybody coming in on 74, coming in on 75, right? Gallons and gallons of animal fat everywhere. They bring out the fire trucks. They can't have policemen trying to scoop up the animal fat. Everybody's traffic is backed up. Everybody's day is ruined. Everybody's commute home has changed. That's what happens when there's a blow up of bitterness. It just spreads everywhere. You remember what happened? P&G donated three and a half tons of Dawn detergent. And they came and they just dropped in three and a half tons of Dawn detergent there at 74 and 75. And sure enough, it cuts grease out of your way. The joke all around Cincinnati was that there was a new Dawn three days later in Cincinnati. Because all of a sudden, the grease that hadn't been caused by holding anybody driving in that road, they were affected by it. And I'm telling your kids and your grandkids... Your aunts and your uncles and your nephews, they are all stuck in traffic patterns because of a lack of forgiveness of something that's happened to you and your inability to let the grace of God begin to dissolve some of that bitterness, begin to eat away at some of the way that it's been eating away at you. And I want to ask you in this Lent season, whether you've celebrated Lent or not, just a time before Easter reflecting on forgiveness, to begin to ask God, do I need a new dawn Could you cut through some of my bitterness? Could you cut through some of the grease that's been clogging up my spiritual heart so that I can, for the sake of myself and those in the future, bring freedom to those around me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this challenging passage and a reminder of how important forgiveness is. 
God, I ask that you would use these teachings, use these messages for the next few weeks to help us learn to forgive ourselves, to forgive other people who aren't repenting, to give the piece of the puzzle to somebody else that we need to own up to of what we've done. God, that we would be people who battle and fight for freedom and forgiveness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Hope you enjoy this journey for the next few weeks heading up to Easter. Thanks for being here.